You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now, if you are a visitor, we do warmly welcome you, and we pray that God bless you as you worship with us. Um, At the end, we have uh, tea and coffee and so on. Please do hang around for that. We do have uh, one visitor who's leaving us, and Emily, where is she? Where is she? Is she here? Emily, come on up. It's all right, I'm not going to make you say anything. I'm just going to want to give you a wee gift from us. So, Emily's been with us for six weeks, seven weeks? Nine weeks. Okay, nine weeks. It seems such a short time. And we have absolutely loved having you here. I hope you've enjoyed it. We're sorry about the accommodation you were in, you know, but it was... Uh, it's been a joy having you here, and it's been, thank you so much for what you've done with the children as well, and with the Aspire project and everything, and I hope that you'll come back, okay, you are very welcome anytime, and I'm really sorry, I usually give people one of my own books, so that's really bad, but this is a book about this church, and about McShane, and there's, it's kind of like an open book at the end, which will, you kind of write what God is still going to do, and thank you for being part of that, so God bless you. There you go. Let me just pray for you. Lord, thank you for Emily, and thank you for bringing her here, and may your blessing be upon her. We thank you that it is. We thank you your spirit is at work in her life. Bless her as she goes home, and Lord, may we continue to have fellowship with her and support her. Thank you for Tom and Jan and their hospitality as well, and we pray that your hand would be upon us all in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, Now, I say this all the time, but this is true. If you grasp what God says in this passage, then it will change your life. If you are a doer of the word as well as a hearer of the word. Now, I say that a lot, but the the reason I say that is because I teach the word of God. And the Word of God is living and active, and it does change our lives. If you come along this evening, you'll hear Sinclair uh, preaching on uh, one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 124, which is a great song about freedom. And this is kind of, what we're going to look at is kind of uh, a prelude to that. Can you move that forward? Sorry, Adeline. That's it, yeah. Let me just read the words uh, that are there. Second Corinthians chapter 7 and from verse 8. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So, even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong or of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted To us you are. By this we are encouraged. 
I don't know if you ever regret pressing the send button. You do that moment, you know, you press the button and there's no going back. You can't retrieve it. You can't take it back. For those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about and are over 100, then um, you ever regret putting the letter through the letterbox? And you put it in, you go, ah, and you put your hand in, you want to take it back, and you can't take it back. Once I wrote a letter that I was so desperate to get it back, I waited for the postman to come to open the box and say, can you please give me my letter back? Which I had a job persuading him because I had to prove it was me and I wasn't stealing uh, letters. Well, Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians, and he says here that he had some regret. It was quite a severe letter. His letter, and what we're looking at to some extent, is about pastoral discipline, an idea which we don't like because it doesn't fit with our culture and also because it has been severely abused. But I think it's like a family. You need discipline in your family. It's very important. Some of us were having a meal last night and we were talking about different cultures. Um, Our friends from Malaysia were telling us about how they got belted at school or, or the cane or whatever. I'm old enough to remember getting the belt in school. That seems horrific uh, nowadays to lots of people. And then we were hearing about some more extreme methods of punishment that were used uh, in uh, an African country. We're not sure how discipline works, but we all know that what we need, we do need discipline. And that, by the way, is one of the things that's wrong with the church Because the marks of the church, preaching of the word, administration of the sacraments, what what we call distribution or helping the poor, and discipline. Discipline is really important. But if, like me, you're sensitive and caring, then discipline is actually quite hard. It's difficult. Paul's letter hurt them, caused a reaction, and gives us a great lesson. And it's a lesson we all need to learn. And I don't really want to focus on the aspect of discipline because that's the context of the whole lesson, the whole letter. I want to focus on the idea here, the difference that Paul teaches between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. (coughs) The first is very simple. There are several differences and he identifies some of them. First is this. Worldly sorrow turns us away from God Godly sorrow turns us towards God. We can say we're sorry for things. We can say we're sorry to God. And and you can say sorry in such a way, it can sound incredibly genuine, but it's wrong. The worldly sorrow, first of all, it's kind of like a fake repentance. It's like Pharaoh, when he was sorry for what he had done to the Israelites as he was being punished, but then quickly retreated from that. It's like the person who becomes ill and suddenly has a tremendous interest in spiritual things. And then when they get better, they forget about it. It's like those who engage in ritual repentance, who go to the priest to say confession, but come back every week confessing the same sins, nothing ever changing in their lives. I think another kind of that is is manipulative repentance, crocodile tears, um, the child bursting into tears. I'm told that one of my children had the ability to wrap me around her little finger. I'll not say who, 
But, you know, it's, it's, it's like a child, you can see that the parent is giving the child a row for doing something, and then the child bursts, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I've let you down. Oh, I've... And, and the mother is usually a little bit more realistic and cynical and goes, yeah, right, keep going. Um, but the, the father goes, oh, that's all right, pet, you're okay. And the child soon learns, it's, you know, if I burst into tears and say sorry, then I'll get away with it, rather than fight them. Well, we're sometimes, we think we can do that to God. We think we can manipulate God. We can almost like being sorry. Now, here's the, the key in this. Because someone says sorry, feels sorry, or looks miserable, it doesn't mean that they've got godly repentance. And here, I think, is a huge difference. This kind of sorrow is very me-centered. It's all about me, about what I feel. Maybe you're unhappy. Why are you unhappy? Worldly sorrow says, because I'm fed up with myself, because I've let myself down, or I've let others down. Now, that may, may sound humble, but it's not humility. It's often humiliation. It's wounded pride. Godly sorrow is different. Godly sorrow doesn't say, I've let myself down. I've let my family down. Godly sorrow says, I have sinned against God. Godly sorrow, we're told here, leads to repentance. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. Godly sorrow, worldly sorrow turns us away from God. Godly sorrow turns us towards God. It is literally here, it means according to God's sorrow, the kind of sorrow that's turned towards God, that has God as its focus. And some of you are very good Presbyterians, and some of you are awful Presbyterians, and some of you haven't a clue what Presbyterianism is. doesn't matter, but you need to know. Let's move on to the next one, please. You need to know what this is. Catechism question 87. I shouldn't have put the answer up. I should have just asked you, and then you could have said... Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Repentance unto life is a saving grace. It's given by God where we have a true sense of our sin. We understand the mercy of God in Christ, not just our sin, and hating our sin and grieving over our sin, we turn from it to God. Repentance in it has these three things. It has grief, it has sorrow, and it has contrition, confession, and conversion. Godly sorrow always acts. The man who beats up his wife or hits his wife and then the next day says, I'm really sorry. I'm really, really, really sorry. And even cries whilst he's saying it. And then the next week does the same thing again. It's not godly sorrow. Godly sorrow acts. John Calvin says this, unless the sinner, see I've got that up there as well. Put that on, please that. Unless the sinner be dissatisfied with himself, detest his manner of life, and be thoroughly grieved from an apprehension of sin, he will never betake himself to the Lord. 
On the other hand, it's impossible for a man to experience a sorrow of this kind without its giving birth to a new heart. I think that's a really profound and helpful insight. You're not a Christian. If you're not a Christian and you don't want to be a Christian or you're thinking I might like to be a Christian but maybe not yet, I don't think you've got the godly sorrow because you're never going to turn to Jesus Christ unless you see that your life needs to be turned from. Be dissatisfied with himself. Detest his manner of life. Be grieved from an apprehension of sin. You never go to the Lord. But on the other hand, if you experience that sorrow, it's impossible, says Calvin, without that giving birth to a new heart. Ironically, there are people who think, I don't need God, I'm quite close to God, I'm okay, who are far, far away from God, and there are other people who say, I can't get near God. I'm so unworthy. And actually, they're much closer. There's a grief and a sorrow and a contrition. So, first difference. Worldly sorrow turns us away from God. Godly sorrow turns us towards God. Let's go uh, on to the next one, back to these verses. Second difference. Worldly sorrow has regrets. Godly sorrow has no regrets. Worldly sorrow in terms of the lots of regrets. There are lots of people today who regret what they have done. There are people who will be waking up with enormous hangovers saying, I really regret whatever happened last night. There are regrets that occur in so many different ways. Um, We've recently been watching Breaking Bad. Um, Only to recommend it if you've got a strong stomach. But uh, I I think it's absolutely incredible. And so I think it's an incredible series because it's it's, it's one of the few things I've seen that gives a a really brilliant portrayal of how sin begets sin, of how ultimately there are no heroes. And Breaking Bad gives you kind of the idea about somebody who starts off as a fairly decent, respectable person, and by the end of it, you actually, it's, it's so cleverly done that you actually end up hating the guy because he, or at least, um, you're not exactly crying, I better not, oh yeah, break any spoilers, block your ears if you're going to watch it, you better, but when, when you see what happens to him. Now, the main character in it is a guy called Walter, who's a chemistry teacher who ends up um, with cancer, but in order to fund treatment and look after his family, he starts producing uh, drugs and the, all the lifestyle and the trouble that comes out of that. But what's fascinating in the program for me is He really regrets what he's done. He weeps tears for what he has done. But he never gets out of it. He goes deeper and deeper into the pit. It's funny. I I went and just kind of Googled no regrets for songs. And there's loads of them. People singing about not having regrets. Frank Sinatra, who we'll come to in a minute. Robbie Williams. There's all different kinds. There's... uh, of songs about people saying, I'm going to have no regrets. I'm going to live my life with no regrets. But in reality, people do have regrets. Anyone who's human goes through life and there are an enormous amount of regrets. But godly sorrow, he says, has no regrets. 
Why does Paul say that? He said he was sorry about what he did at one level. He regretted sending this letter. But overall, he didn't have a regret because he didn't harm them. There was a real conviction of sin, but he didn't have regrets for how he acted. We would like to live our lives, I think, with genuinely no regrets. And I'm going to make a a bold statement here. I'm going to say that it's only the Christian who can do that, not because we never do anything wrong, but because what we do wrong, even what we do wrong, is forgiven and redeemed and used by God. There's another uh, singer, Lecrae. I was almost tempted to rap his song, but I won't. One day, I'll have the courage. But he's got a great song about uh, regrets, and he says this, let them know that when I come to the end of my road, and they ask me, was it worth it, the hurting, the pain, and the life I choose, I'll do it again in a heartbeat, and I die with no regrets. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't you really like to have a life where you die with no regrets? And I don't think you can. I don't think you will. I don't think I will unless someone can come and take away the things that cause our regrets. It would be great to be ransomed, healed, restored, and forgiven. Okay, let's move on. The third difference is that worldly sorrow brings death, godly sorrow brings life. Matthew 27, here's an example of worldly sorrow. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I betrayed innocent blood. What's that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Did Judas repent? No. Was he sorry for what he did? Yes. Was he in despair about what he did? Yes. But did he repent? No. He didn't turn to God. He turned in on himself. And that is what worldly sorrow is. It brings death. Now, I'm going to have to be really, really careful here, and you're going to have to listen really carefully, because we can easily miss here. Is this saying that depression is sinful? One in ten people who suffer from severe depression attempt suicide. Is it saying that if you're depressed, you're sinful? No. No more than it's saying that if you've got flu, you're sinful, or if you've got cancer, you're sinful. But it is saying that depression is a consequence of sin, just as cancer is a consequence of sin, living in a fallen and a broken world. It's part Depression is part of our broken and fallen world, which will only ultimately be healed by Christ. Now, I want to say it again. It's very important that Christians grasp, just because depression is to do with our feeling, it can be a real illness as much as if you've got cancer or if you've got the flu. Part of how we learn to cope and how we deal with things is how we deal with these broken, our broken emotions and our broken feelings. And it's very hard to do so because our feelings so dominate. You can't say ignore your feelings because then you stop being human. So how do we deal with this? 
Sometimes, for example, we don't see clearly, so we regret things we haven't done. There are people who live their lives in regret for things that they haven't been guilty of. Or, more likely, we regret things that are exaggerated. It's an inappropriate sorrow. There are lots of examples of that I could give. Some of them are very humorous, but it's actually not a humorous thing because you can do something and it can really weigh on you and weigh on and weigh, and in your mind it grows and grows and grows. You can have guilt that comes from delusion or from irrationality. I'll tell you what it's like. It's like a small coffee stain on your carpet. And you go, oh no, my whole carpet is ruined. Now it's a stain that's so small that you could hardly see it. But you are tormented by that. I mean the whole carpet, it's got to be ripped up. You know, and in a more extreme case, every carpet in your house has got to go. You know, because some stain has come in. And sometimes what the devil does is there's something that we've done that's wrong, but it's actually not that major, but we feel guilty about it. And it overwhelms us, it dominates us. There is an unhealthy guilt. I say in this that the task of the Christian counselor is not to get rid of all guilt, but to ensure that the guilt felt is appropriate to their circumstances. Sometimes we feel an unhealthy and a wrong guilt. It's like uh, Shakespeare's Macbeth in, in Macbeth, asking the doctor about his wife's behavior. And I love this. I put it up here because it's a bit old English, but you should be able to get it. Canst thou not minister to a mind diseased? Pluck from the memory a rooted sorrow. Raise out the written troubles of the brain. And with some sweet oblivious antidote, cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous stuff which weighs upon the heart. It's a great quote. Can you not minister to the diseased mind? Can you not take out the memory, the rooted sorrow? Can you not just wipe the brain clean? Can't you take out the, the stuff that's in, that weighs upon the heart? And the answer there in the patient must minister to himself. Now let me tell you this. That is the world's answer. You have to minister to yourself. But that is not the Christian answer. The Christian answer is never snap out of it. The Christian answer is never pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, which of course is impossible anyway, when you think about it logically. The Christian answer is something different. The Christian answer is your sins are forgiven you. So contrast Judas with Peter. Let's go on to 1 Peter 2 verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you are like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. See, the world's answer is either you're not guilty, snap out of it, you know, deal with this. And the Christian answer is you are guilty, you are broken. The world is broken, but Christ is the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. By his wounds, you have been healed. Canst thou not minister to a mind disease? No, you can't. Can Jesus? Yes. Can you remove a rooted sorrow from the memory? No, you can't. Can Jesus? Yes. 
Can you raise out the troubles of the brain? No, you can't. Can Jesus? Yes. Can you remove the sin that weighs upon the heart, the sorrow that weighs upon the heart, the heaviness that weighs upon the heart? No, you can't. But Jesus can. And that's what repentance is. It is repentance unto life. That's why that catechism question is so important to grasp. It's not repentance unto death. It's repentance unto life. It's repentance that leads to new obedience, new spiritual fruit, and new life. It's a bit like some of us were, were out the front there doing the, the church garden bit. Now, I'm very, very thankful that John Murdoch came along before uh, myself and Graham destroyed the whole place because uh, we didn't really know what we were doing. You know, if it grows, hack it down. Uh, that's the kind of principle and, you know, and, you know, it doesn't matter, just pull it out and whatever. And John came and said, no, no, don't pull out the weeds. You, you dig them up and you replant the bulbs and you cut it here in this way. And no, that's not a weed. That's actually a plant. And no, that is a weed. You can get rid of that. It was great to have someone knows what they are doing. But the point about you cut it back so that there's new life. You're, you're not cutting it back to kill it. You're not going out into that garden and say, let's concrete over everything. And that's the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow squashes the human spirit. Worldly sorrow kills the human spirit. Worldly sorrow concretes over your emotions and your life. But godly sorrow, your father, the gardener, comes and he prunes and he cuts and he digs deep and he replants. It's repentance unto life. It's why repentance, godly sorrow, is such a difficult thing to feel, but such a liberating thing to experience. Let's go on. Fourth difference. Worldly sorrow destroys relationships. Godly sorrow renews them. Worldly sorrow breaks relationships. Going back to Breaking Bad, um, Walt says he's doing all this thing for his family, but He destroys his family by what he does. What the example we have here in 2 Corinthians with Paul is, Paul is really concerned about his relationship with the church. And he wrote them a letter that was a really tough letter. But look what happened. There's a renewed relationship. He said, I saw what earnestness. What was that? They wanted to clear themselves from the initial attack against Paul. They didn't just say after they read the letter from Paul, oh, what a mess we're in. Oh, what terrible people we are. Oh, Paul is right. Oh, we are worms of the earth. We're doomed. We are not worthy and all this kind of stuff. They didn't say that. They were, they were energized. And here's another key distinguishing factor. Worldly sorrow produces lethargy. I can't be bothered. I'm just, I just can't be bothered. I'm so fed up. I can't be bothered. Godly sorrow produces energy. I ain't bothered isn't just the the motto of the Essex chavs. I ain't bothered is the motto of the person, Christian or non-Christian, who suffers from worldly sorrow. I just don't care anymore. Paul says, but look at you. Look what earnestness. You did care. Indignation. What was the indignation? Their indignation was not against Paul, but against the offender who'd done so much harm. Alarm. They'd realized what was happened. They were shocked. Longing and concern. They wanted to see their relationship with Paul restored. They had a desire to see justice done. And that's how real godly sorrow and repentance works. Take Zacchaeus. 
Luke 19, verse 8. As you all know from Sunday school, Zacchaeus was a very little man. He was a crook and a thief and an exploiter. And after he was converted, this is what happened. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Worldly sorrow says, I'm really sorry for what I did. I'm really depressed about what I did. I hope that you forgive me. Godly sorrow says, I'm sorry for what I did. Accepts, turns to God, looks to Christ, accepts Christ's forgiveness, and then acts. Now, I think there are a lot of ways we can apply all of this. Those are the four differences that I want to state Um, Just to remind you of them and then kind of apply them. Worldly sorrow turns us away from God. Godly sorrow leads us to repentance, which turns us to God. Worldly sorrow has regrets. Godly sorrow has no regrets. Worldly sorrow brings death. Godly sorrow brings life. Worldly sorrow destroys relationships. Godly sorrow renews them. There's so much that we can learn and apply, and I want to do it in just two or three ways. Firstly, Let's learn to deal with conflict situations in a godly way, even if that's painful, because God will be honored in it. Paul says the purpose of writing his letter was not to get them to act against the defender, nor to defend himself, but it was rather to stir them up to action, to prove their love, to prove, to show that they could see for themselves how devoted they were to Paul and to the gospel message. In other words, it was a real test. And let me tell you this, every conflict situation that occurs in your life and that occurs in this church is a test of your faith in God and your faith in Jesus and whether you really believe what the Bible says. Do you know what we do? And I, I, I'll guarantee, maybe you're, maybe you're not this person, and in that case I apologize. But every one of you that I know is like me. Conflict, we don't like it. We're going to back off from it. We're going to ignore it. So it's very simple. There's somebody, you might even get to the stage that there's somebody in this room right now who if you, if you spoke to them, you'd want to slap them. So what do you do? They're having coffee over there, so you're down here. They go over to get coffee, you move. Because you don't want to face up to it. And we have got to face up to these kind of situations. Paul was really encouraged because he sent Titus and when Titus returned and said, listen, it worked. The Corinthians really do love you and they care about you and they want to implement the gospel. He was deliriously happy. And you know what that's like. Have you ever had that happen that there's a conflict situation and you know what you want to do? You want to talk to your friend about it. You want to tell someone else. You want to put your side of the story. You want to pour out. You have to go and talk to the person themselves. It doesn't work out. You get to take other people along with you, whatever. But sometimes it does. Sometimes a genuine, caring, real, facing up to the reality works. And sometimes, this is where the church discipline comes in. Sometimes you go and it doesn't work out and there's tension and trouble. And you then have to go to the leaders of the church because you can't have that in a church. And the elders try and deal with it. And it seems awful. It seems as though there's a split. It seems as though someone is being disciplined. And it hasn't worked. And it really, really hurts when a fellowship is split. I know that whenever God 
is at work in the community of his people here, the devil will also be at work. And he's largely at work through us. But yet I've seen many, many times, I've seen when me, personally, and others haven't dealt with things in a godly way. But I've seen when we have, that though it was painful, the ultimate result has been restoration. Many, many times I've seen that. Because that's real fellowship. God's word brings godly sorrow, true repentance, and restored relationships. It's why I don't mind if when you're listening to God's word from here, you are absolutely devastated and broken by it. I don't want you to be broken. But I do if what you consider to be whole is distorted and perverted. It's when God's word brings true sorrow and true repentance and restored relationships. I don't want God's word, and it wouldn't be God's word if it did, just to pile guilt upon you. That's what the devil does. But to, to be convicted by God, this is, this is me. This is what I have done that is wrong. That's a tremendous thing. Now, I think that's true of conversion. If you're not a Christian, as we we use the quote from Calvin, you're not going to become a Christian until you realize you need to be forgiven. I think that's true of conversion, but sometimes I think it's true of us as Christians. It's almost as though we need to be converted all over again. That God needs to dig deep into our lives. He needs to root out the weeds and the pride and the greed and the selfishness, and the self-absorption, and even the pain, and the bitterness, and the anger that we've allowed to stay in there, and fester, and fester, and fester. And God comes and says, no, I'm not letting that happen. And it hurts. Please never go to a church where you're always comfortable. Please don't do that, because it's going to be a bad church. I mean, don't go to one that beats you up all the time. That's going to be a bad church too, but sometimes you want to be there and you want to hear God's word and, it, and you, it will just overwhelm you as you see yourself as God sees you. I want also to return to the idea of regrets. And I'm coming back. I have to come back to Frank Sinatra's anthem from hell. My way. You know all the words for it? Regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do and saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much more than this, I did it my way. What incredible arrogance. I planned each charted course. Yes, there were times, I'm sure you knew, when I bit off more than I could chew, but through it all, when there was doubt, I ate it up and spit it out. I faced it all, and I stood tall and did it my way. Again, what overwhelming supreme arrogance there was doubt about myself. So I ate it up, I spat it out, I did it my way. Who cares about you, Lord? I've loved, I've laughed and cried, I've had my share, my fill, my share of losing. And now as tears subside, I find it all so amusing. To think I did all that, and may I say, not in a shy way, oh no, not me. I did it, well, oh no, 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 not me. I did it my way. I think it's sad that that is the ultimate song for our generation. That there's no sin, just a few minor regrets. No real right and wrong. Just behavioral patterns imposed on us as children. That our conscience is just an infantile experience of parental authority internalized as a Freudian superego. Okay, what did I just say? That's the kind of waffle that our society is governed by. Did you know that? 
That the conscience, the bad things that you feel, that's just your Freudian superego being imposed upon you by authority figures like parents and dumb preachers. Guilt in our culture is the only sin. Guilt is not wholesome. Guilt is not healthy. And sometimes, as I said, that is the case. But Roy Clement says this, we no longer speak of conviction of sin. sin. Instead, we send the guilt-stricken person to a pastor for counseling. We speak of a guilt complex and send the guilt-stricken person to a psychiatrist for therapy. I just simply ask you if you ever feel guilty. And when you do feel guilty, just simply say, what am I guilty about? What have I done that I should repent of? Now, again, caution. This comes with a big health warning. Beware of vague feelings of guilt. The Holy Spirit doesn't do vagueness. The Holy Spirit doesn't give you this vague sense that there's something wrong with you. You feel a failure that is more likely to be the accusation of the devil than the conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit. The devil wants to destroy us, to demoralize us. It is the devil who is a perfectionist. Guilt should not be your way of life. That's true. Sometimes you'll say to someone, I can't say this, they are a very sensitive person. No, they are not. They have an irrational guilt. They are suffering from worldly sorrow. And it is not good to encourage people to wallow in guilt. Sometimes you've got to come and say, what are you, what are you on about? You're not guilty. Sometimes people, as I say, wallow in that. What do we do with all of this? For me, we mustn't wallow in our sin and guilt. We need to do this. We need to repent, to make restitution, to put things right, to let Christ put things right, to beware of superficial repentance. Now, maybe most of what I'm saying to you doesn't, doesn't connect. It doesn't hit because you don't feel guilty. I don't want you to feel a wrong kind of guilt. But I tell you this, I, I, I pray to God that you would have the guilt that comes from the Holy Spirit coming to convict of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come, and the sooner the better, because godly sorrow is a blessing. If you don't have godly sorrow, you are going to have worldly sorrow. Maybe some of you, you say, I get the whole guilt thing, I'm loaded down with guilt. Why? Is it real? Is it appropriate? Forget the unworthiness Let's just take it for granted that you're a rotten sinner. Okay, so am I. What about the specific sins? Ask God to convict you of specific sins and enable you to see Jesus, to know that you're forgiven so that you can repent and take practical action. You know, I think a good way of repentance to understand if you you really are repenting is this. You're not at the center of the stage when you are repenting. You've got to put something bigger in place of your self-pity. I read a a man saying this, and I thought it was really, really helpful. And uh, for those of you who are psychiatrists, uh, you can correct me afterwards, this is wrong, or you don't think this is right, but I thought this was helpful. He said, the cross I think, he said, I think psychiatrists all over the world are looking for this. People need to move from self-rejection, self-abuse, to self-respect with a clear conscience. And the only way is the cross. What 
can take away my sin. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Your sin is taken away and your guilt is atoned for. And no psychiatrist and no doctor and no minister and no priest and no friend and no family member, no therapist is ever going to be able to do that for you. They can perhaps point you in the right direction, but they cannot do it. Let me go back to Sinatra. I missed out the last verse of his song. For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of ones who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. Johnny Cash um, sings a fabulous song. It's not his song, but I think he does it best. Hurt. And um, he, he quotes this in the song. And he says, what have I got? And he said, my empire of dirt. If you go the Burger King route to life, have it your way. You go the Sinatra route, Paul Anker route, have it your way. I did it my way. What have I got? You've got an empire of dirt. You've got nothing except destruction and hell. If you really want no regrets, if you want all the things that would cause you to regret and have worldly sorrow to be gone, then you need to have godly sorrow and repent. I mean, sounds good, doesn't it? I took the blows. Well, God have mercy on you if that's your attitude. I can. I can't take the blows. I just can't cope. I really cannot cope with taking the blows. I just don't want to do it my way because it's not going to work. Look at that extraordinary phrase. I only noticed that this week. Not the words of one who kneels. That's why I said this is an anthem from hell. Because he's saying, I'm not kneeling before God. And that's absolutely what's being referred to. I'm not bowing down before anyone. I'm standing up and I'm saying, come on, give me all you've got. But I tell you this, you're better off by a million times being someone who kneels, who bows the knee before Jesus and says, Lord, I am sorry for my sin." I repent of my pride, my arrogance, and my self-sufficiency. Take me, forgive me, cleanse me, create in me a clean heart, O Lord. Go back to the catechism, or rather go on to the catechism. Repentance unto life is a saving grace. It's a grace from God, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, an apprehension, you know, again, a true sense, not a false sense, not false guilt, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, understanding what God has done, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God, not in on themselves, not to other people, with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Now you have a choice. You absolutely have a choice. You walk out of this church this morning and you may not be as arrogant as Sinatra, but by how you react to this, you're choosing his way. If you say, nah, No, I can cope. I can handle it. I can deal with it. I'll do it my way. Or you can bow down and you can be one of those people who kneels and says, Lord, I can't. I can't cope. I can't. Help me. I can't forgive myself. I can't forgive other people. I can't do all these things. I determine to obey you and I go out and I just screw up. I can't do it. 
and your heart is broken that you can't do it. And you, you, you're just stunned by your own inadequacy and your own weakness. And Jesus says, that's godly sorrow. I take your hand. I lift you. You're depressed. You're discouraged. You're worn out. You're exhausted. You're full of your own sin. You're aware of other people's sin. And Jesus says, I know, I know, I did it. I did it. I did it for you. And you just go, that's it. It's as simple as that. It is as liberating and as wonderful as that. I woke up one morning, long, long time ago, not long after I became a Christian, utterly overwhelmed by a sense of sin and of evil and of awfulness. And I didn't want to open my Bible. I didn't want to have any, I just, not because I thought God wasn't true, but because I thought he was true and I wasn't. But I forced myself to open my Bible because I thought I couldn't know where else to go. And I was reading through Isaiah and I came to Isaiah 6. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. Then the angel came and took a coal from the altar, and he touched my lips, and he said, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Grasp that. Get it. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. You can't go to hell. If you are a believer in Jesus, it's all gone. And that's why you can be reconciled to your brother and sister, and that's why you can forgive, and that's why you can walk out of this building with a spring in your step because godly sorrow has brought you to repentance that leads to salvation. Amen. Lord, thank you. We come to you and we just thank you so much for what you have done for us. Give each of us that godly sorrow. Lord, please don't let us be those who fake or manipulate, or twist, or wallow in guilt and self-pity. Take us from the center of the stage, and Lord, you be on the throne of our hearts and our minds, and help us to weep for what we have done and what we are, but to rejoice in what you have done and what you are, and what you are making us, and how you have renewed and, and cleansed us. Oh, Lord, grant that this would be true for every person here. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.